Jogcast, better than a cactus doing karaoke, with Jen Gupter, Liz Guzman, Libby Jones, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The Jogcast, September 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jogcast. I'm Libby Jones and joining me today is Jen Gupter and Christina Smith. Hi guys! Hello! Hello! So, I've not been on the Jogcast presenting for a while, so it's good to be back, uh, back in the country and back in the studio, so yay! Libby, I think you might need to explain the witty comment, because at the moment it probably doesn't make sense to anyone. I, I'd rather it didn't make sense to anyone. <laughs> Can I explain slightly? Go on, go on, off you go. Libby may or may not have been injured in a karaoke-related accident which resulted in her having to walk around for a little while with her arms kind of up, looking like a cactus. That still doesn't really explain it. Um, that's all I'm going to say. It was a freak accident at a karaoke bar, and I want to leave it at that. Okay, we should also welcome Christina back. Hello. Do you want to tell us why you've not been on the Jogcast for ages? Um, been observing in various places. Bringing the weather with me, of course. Um, <laughs> some rather spectacular rain in Chile. In the driest place on earth. Yeah. Wasn't the wettest time ever in Chile while you were there? Worst storm since 1987, which was the year I was born. Nice. <laughs> um, they had roughly four and a half years worth of rain in 24 hours. Wow. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, Chile, and then where else have you been? Uh, Hawaii. Hawaii. Doing some observing there. Did it rain? Only a little bit, and not while I was at the summit, so that was fine. Oh, it's a hard life being an astronomer, isn't it? Really it really is. So I've been to Taiwan and Poland, Chile and Hawaii. I've been in Manchester all summer. Oh. Yeah. Oh, well. Anyway, back to the show. In the show this time, Tim O'Brien answers your questions, and we have a whole host of odds and ends for you. But first, before all of that, Mark and Liz talk to Andrew Strong about the high-energy ISM. Well, today we're interviewing Dr. Andy Strong, who gave a colloquium here at JBCA about the high-energy interstellar medium. Could you tell us how you study the interstellar medium at high energies, and indeed what it what it is that you're looking at? Well, what I was actually concentrating on, um, I'm visiting Manchester this week actually because there's uh, two satellites which are actually flying at the present time, and one is called... Planck, probably, which you have heard in, in other broadcasts so. on this program. And the other one, which I'm really um, working on, is, is called Fermi. And Fermi was a famous physicist, actually, an uh, Italian physicist, um, extremely famous. And the this satellite, which is a NASA satellite, which was launched in 2008, is named after Enrico Fermi. And he was actually one of the people who did the pioneering work on, on the... Uh, high-energy particles we call cosmic rays, which we'll talk about later, perhaps. Okay. So Enrico Fermi is the name of this satellite. And this satellite is um, is actually quite a big thing, and it's measuring gamma rays. And uh, if you don't know what a gamma ray is, just think of it as, a, as an X-ray, but an X-ray with much higher energy than a normal X-ray, which, for example, when you get X-rayed in, 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 um, in the hospital or something, you have X-rays of a certain energy, a certain power, and our gamma rays have about a thousand times more energy than that. So, so this actually, is really what we call the highest energy yeah. photons that we see. They're not the highest energy, they're actually even higher energy ones, which okay. you measure actually from the ground with other methods. 
So these are kind of in the middle, and they have about, let's see, how can I say it, 100 million electron volts is how we measure them. It's hard to, it's hard to actually turn that into, into units which people can perhaps understand. <laughs> but an electron volt is a sort of typical energy of a transition of an atom. Yes. So, And it's like the light you see. The light you see with your eyes is about one electron volt, uh-huh. and we're talking about 100 million. Okay, so each photon is yeah. really packing a punch. It packs a punch, and when I compare with my optical astronomers, you know, they're measuring one EV, and so we measure one of our photons, and actually has probably as much energy as they measure in their whole career. <laughs> <laughs> and probably a lot more than any radio astronomers measure in their whole the career. The radio astronomers <laughs> have about a factor of a million. When, when they complain that our instruments are primitive by some standards, I say, well, every, every single one of our photons... 100 million of you. <laughs> we get our own back. But by comparison, we measure relatively few of them, but we still measure millions of them now. Well, it, the history of gamma ray astronomy, it started in the in the 60s, and then we had the very first satellite. It started off actually with balloons. Mm-hmm. So you got a bug, you make the balloon fly, could measure a few gamma rays. And then um, in the late 60s, there was an experiment, a satellite, and they measured about 500 gamma rays. Wow. So they made the first map of the sky. So every photon was really precious in that. Absolutely. <laughs> Analyze it by hand. And then came another one a bit later, which got 5,000. And then in the 70s, there was an experiment called COSB, which I was also involved with in the later stages. Unfortunately, the British started off in COSB, but then they decided they couldn't do it anymore. So it became a European, and I had to actually moved to Milan at that point in order to follow the, the Cosby data. Cosby but that was beautiful. They got about um, 100,000 photons and made a beautiful map of the, of the galaxy in gamma rays, which became actually quite famous. So what does the gamma ray sky look like if you look out into the universe? Basically what you see is you see the Milky Way shining. You see the band of the Milky Way. That's, that's what you see. That's where most of these gamma rays come from. But you also see quasars and you see pulsars. Um, at the beginning, there were only very few, but now this new satellite, Fermi, has measured hundreds and even thousands of, of these sources, let's say pulsars and, and um, extragalactic, let's say, sources outside, let's say quasars. So you're looking over all distances, because the pulsars are sort of comparatively close in our galactic neighborhood, but the quasars are the most, some of the most distant things the most that we distant can see. Ones, yeah. We can see lots of pulsars, and we can see lots of these very distant quasars, too, out to, out to really big distances, like half the, distant, half the radius of the universe is, is the limit we can actually reach. And what's interesting is some of these sources, some of these extragalactic sources, some of these quasars are actually giving out most of their energy in the gamma ray range. So that's very interesting from the physical point of view. Okay, so until you look in gamma rays, then you're not really seeing most of what the quasars most give you. the energy, yeah, yeah. And this can be related, of course, you measure these things with all sorts of telescopes. You measure them with radio telescopes and with normal optical telescopes and, and with X-ray telescopes and with gamma rays. When you put all those things together, you actually measure with wavelengths, which are changing by about a factor of... 100 million or something, mm. different wavelengths, and then you put all toge- that together and you can do lots of nice um, physics with that, because you see so many different wavelengths at the same time from the same object. So then when you look a bit closer to home, like at the interstellar medium of our own galaxy, that's obviously a, 
diffuse thing. It's kind of the gas between the stars uh, rather than the compact sources. What sort of uh, things do you then see? Well, that, you're exactly right that you see the gas which is between the stars and you see it because what we call cosmic rays, which are these high-energy particles, which I, I was talking at the beginning that Fermi was, was um, one of the first people to um, to work on, they actually interact with the interstellar gas. So if you have a, a cosmic ray proton, that's like like a hydrogen atom, let's say, but going very fast, mm. and it hits an interstellar gas atom, they makes uh, an interaction just like at the um, at CERN in the LHC or something, full of things like that going on, of course, okay. but they have in the out there interstellar space. And they make gamma rays just by, just by these interactions. So the cosmic rays themselves are also packing a tremendous punch then? Yeah, the cosmic size. rays are something we, which are actually filling the whole of the galaxy. And the thing about cosmic rays is you can also measure them directly at the Earth by sending up balloons. In fact, we can mention that um, cosmic rays were discovered... It will be actually a centenary of cosmic rays next oh. year, and it was discovered by a guy called Victor Hess in Austria. In um, let's see, now let me get this right. I <laughs> guess it must be 1912 because it means that the centenary is next year. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you can find on the web if you look, you find pictures of this Austrian guy going up in a balloon to a couple of kilometres of what height was, and then actually finding that you measure the cosmic rays; they're everywhere. They're on the Earth. They're going through your body all the time. Mm-hmm. But nobody knew what they were. So what he did, he went up in a balloon to find out. He expected them to get less as you go up. Mm. In fact, they got more. The intensity increased. So conclusion, they're coming from outside the Earth. Mm. And nobody know, knew before. And so that's the discovery of the fact that cosmic rays come from outside the Earth. And that was the start. They do show up in a few things. I know that sometimes when astronauts take photographs at the International Space Station, you get these streaks across the picture and things like that. Yeah, I mean, they're actually dangerous for astronauts, of course, these, these particles, because they ionize. You know, they're basically dangerous once you get outside the Earth, so you have to you have to protect yourself against them. Okay, so these cosmic rays are everywhere, and you can measure them directly in satellites and in balloons. So it's a whole zoo of cosmic rays, there's the protons, and then there's all the other type of elements you can imagine, up to iron, and even even uranium. So really heavy atomic really, nuclei. Yeah, you can get really heavy um, cosmic rays up to really heavy things. And do we know more now about where they come from and, and what they are? Because they still seem to be quite mysterious. In they are ways. actually still mysterious, and nobody really knows, one must say. People think they came from uh, exploding stars like what we call supernovae remnants, which are, a supernova is when the star explodes, and afterwards it makes this big bubble, which is called a supernova remnant, which lasts a few thousand years. And in this time when they're, when they're in this bubble phase, they accelerate cosmic rays because they are shock waves, basically. So we think it's called shock acceleration. It happens by shock acceleration in the interstellar medium. This is the current theory which seems to seems to hold up. So these cosmic rays then fill the galaxy and then when they interact with the interstellar gas they make gamma rays and that's why we can see the Milky Way shining. So you're not really able to be directional enough to see the cosmic rays directly and say oh well they've come from over there or... No that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting point actually you would think that you could 
because you can measure the direction of the cosmic ray in, in your in your experiment, but you don't actually know where it came from. And the reason is that they're charged particles. A charged particle moving in a magnetic field is it gets bent, changes its direction. And the Milky Way is actually full of magnetic fields. It has actually quite a strong, relatively strong magnetic field by <laughs> let's say by astronomical standards. Mm -hmm. And that means that uh, even if a cosmic ray, even if uh, it's directed immediately towards you when it's emitted, it actually gets so bent that it, when it comes to the Earth, it's going in a completely different direction. Okay. So there's no way that you can um, just look out there and say that cosmic ray is coming from this pulsar of this object because it's been completely bent. But this is, there are cosmic rays which have energy is so high that they hardly see the magnetic field, they're hardly affected. And these are measured in what are called the giant air shower rays, of which, by the way, Havara Park was a very famous air shower ray in Leeds okay. um, until it was closed down. This, this measured cosmic rays at such high energies that you could, in principle, expect to see where they're coming from and, and there are new experiments now which are actually finding some of these cosmic rays apparently coming from quasars perhaps right. or nearby nearby quasar-like things or big extragalactic galaxies and they're coming so, all the way to Earth and then interacting with our atmosphere they're creating yeah. a shower of fear yeah. this is the only particles. way you can see them is because they're very they, you get about one of these things per square kilometre per century <laughs> yeah, right, okay. <laughs> Which is why you need these um, enormous. You use the atmosphere to detect them, and uh, that's a completely different um, way of detecting them. But you can only do it that way. And there are very large experiments of this sort under construction at the present time to try and improve the number of these very high energy cosmic rays you can measure. But that's something quite different from what Fermi can measure, which is down in the what was I saying? A thousand million electron volt okay. range. <laughs> So when you look out at the Milky Way with Fermi and at the interstellar medium, what processes are you seeing at the moment? Well, the first one is, I said, you see the um, interaction of the cosmic rays with the gas. And you also see in other types of cosmic rays, the electron cosmic rays, they interact actually with the, with the photons, with the optical, the visible light in the galaxy, and, and also the microwave background photons, which are absolutely everywhere. Mm. And they they interact, so the electrons interact with those, with those photons by a process called the Compton effect, which is named after a famous physicist called Compton. And um, they also make some of the gamma rays which we see. And that's particularly interesting because in this talk I was also trying to put the, um, the link between the Planck satellite and the Fermi satellite, one of the links is that these electrons, by this Compton effect, mm -hmm. they make gamma rays, but they also make synchrotron radiation, which is when the electrons spiral in the magnetic field. And the synchrotron radiation is one of the things which Planck can measure. So Planck, so, looking at much lower frequencies, measuring the cosmic microwave background, also yeah. picks up the signature from yeah. these interactions. In fact, for them, for some of them, it's, it's what they call a foreground, in other words, in, in order to see the microwave background and do cosmology. For them, these things are disturbing effects, and they really would just want to get rid of them, eliminate them for us. That's the interesting thing, <laughs> because we want to see the galaxy. So um, some of them want to eliminate it, and some of them want to study it. 
but by combining the data of the Fermi and the, and the Planck satellite and other satellites in the future, you have such a wide range of different views that you can um, try and disentangle these processes. So um, I think that link will be very important in the future. And can you map the magnetic field of the galaxy in this way? You can, indeed, especially experiments like um, Planck. They're going to measure the syn this synchrotron radiation due to the electrons. And that depends on the magnetic field. And so by actually mapping that radiation, you can get at least some idea on, on um, how the magnetic field is structured, like it's some huge spiral. We think there's a lot of the magnetic field in the galaxy is, is shaped like a huge spiral, in fact, just like the spiral arms. So it's sort of wound up like the spiral yeah. arms by the rotation? Yes, it's, it's made by some kind of dynamo problem. But there's lots of other ways of measuring magnetic fields, actually. You can look at pulsars and uh, the certain aspects of the radio uh, emission from pulsars which are directly related to the magnetic field. So that's another way of doing it. And you can also look at at the um, a similar thing looking at quasars and other sources outside the galaxy and they also can be measured in the radio mm -hmm. and this gives more information about magnetic fields so it turns out that magnetic fields although one must say that magnetic fields have been to some extent neglected in the past they've been always a sort of secondary interest to many astronomers but um, we think they're actually a central part of the the way the interstellar medium or where the galaxy works. So in the collective, you also mentioned the Sun, observations of the Sun and the cosmic rays. Yes, that was something which was um, very satisfying for me because it turns out that nobody had really expected to see gamma rays from the Sun except when it's really active, like solar flares, which are going off. By the way, the Sun is becoming more active now. You can see sunspots if you look. Uh, but it's actually emitting gamma rays, and it's emitting by the same process as I was talking before, this Compton process. Now, the sun is, of course, emitting, by definition, lots and lots of photons, which you see with your eye. And the, these cosmic ray electrons are everywhere, so they're in the, in the heliosphere, in, in, the, in the places between us and the sun. And they do this Compton scattering. And this means that um, then you get a sort of halo around the sun of gamma rays, like several degrees across and uh, this is kind of obvious it's actually very easy to calculate any any um, second year physics student could probably calculate it but nobody had actually done it and, and a few years ago we did it and it was obvious the sun should be shining in gamma rays and we decided to look in some old data and we actually saw it very faint it was enough to detect it now Fermi this new satellite is actually seeing the sun every day by this process and it's actually quite a strong shining quite strongly in gamma rays. So that's the glow of the cosmic rays interacting with the heliosphere. Yeah, the yeah, with the heliosphere, yeah. There's also the sun itself, it's also um, shining in gamma rays because some other cosmic rays actually interact with the atmosphere of the sun right in the solar atmosphere and they give some other gamma rays too. But they're like very concentrated on the surface. So we see two things. We see a, something from the surface, which is, looks like to us like just a point on the sky following the sun. And we see this huge glow around the sun as well. So that is something which is going to be quite interesting for solar physicists, I think. 
say the sun is becoming more active and that what that means is it means the opposite for us because when the sun is active it pushes the cosmic rays away mm-hmm. it's called the solar wind so we expect that in the next years we will see less gamma rays just because the cosmic rays have been pushed out and by measuring that we can learn something about how the solar wind is working perhaps so yeah the pr- the formation of these cosmic rays in the sun they are they come from nuclear fusion or like where are they because it's different from the processes that you see in the supernova remnant right no this is the same pro- it's actually the cosmic ray protons okay. which are doing these these the same as the interaction with interstellar gas which i talked about earlier it's that process but it's happening in the su- in the solar atmosphere which is full of which is gas so. Um, one of the things that uh, caught my attention in your talk was a uh, reference to uh, giant gamma ray bubbles. And I thought that was uh, uh, really interesting, t- telling us something perhaps about the history of our own galaxy. Yeah, this came as a bit of a surprise. When we look at the Fermi data, we make maps of the whole sky. And uh, a lot of the things we see, we think we understand. But when you actually subtract off all the parts which we think we understand, um, you make a map of the sky and you see features which you sort of didn't expect. And one of the things we didn't expect was indeed things which have got dub bubbles. When we don't really know what they are, but the, the thing which gives a hint is the fact that they are centered in, in the direction of the center of the galaxy. But they're not actually coming from the center of the galaxy. They're like huge bubbles extending tens of degrees on both sides of the center of the galaxy. And since we know the centre of the galaxy is a long way away, the bubbles, almost by association, also must be a long way away. But because they're very big on the sky, they must be really huge in reality. So they've been expanding for a long time. Yeah, they've been there. Um, We don't know how long they've been there anyway. They're huge, like a significant fraction of the size of the galaxy itself, and expanding, say, um, thousands of light years on either side of the galaxy. And so nobody knows what they are, but what it can be is is that the center of the galaxy was acting like a, a quasar a few million years ago, and so it then actually had things like jets and beams accelerating particles into the galaxy. And, with, and it's not doing this anymore, but if it was doing that in the past, it might have filled up these bubbles, be the or- be the cause of these bubbles. So it's a suggestion that the center of our galaxy was. Um, maybe doing something in the past. So it ties in with the idea that possibly all large galaxies at some stage of their evolution have a phase when they're very active. Yeah. And um, that could have been a remnant of our own time when we were shining out across the universe, I suppose. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're talking about timescales of, of a few million years. So whatever happened, it's not happening now, but it happened in the past. I mean, if it was that, what what would have been the cause of all that energy? Well, just like in these active in the, in these quasars, the origin is always some some kind of supermassive black hole, which generates all the um, all the particles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you also mentioned um, dark gas that you are observing, or you think you are. Th- yes, is. it must be absolutely not confused with things which called dark matter this is nothing to do with that just yeah. to make that clear <laughs> now with radio telescopes and with many different ways you can actually measure the gas in the galaxy because it, it shines in various ways and we think we have a pretty good um, inventory of what's out there but it turns out that with gamma rays because of these interactions of cosmic rays with gas they really 
as it were, see all the gas by by this fact that it's shining, by the interactions with cosmic rays, independent of of the gas actually shining by itself. So the cosmic rays see everything, you can say. You know, they just detect everything. And there are hints then from Fermi that there's actually more gas out there than we um, thought was before by other methods. And therefore we called it dark gas because we couldn't see it with any other technique. And um, there are actually hints then coming from other types of experiments like Planck, which you can see in other ways that indeed there is gas out there which we couldn't see by any other way. And the gamma rays are going to be the best way of at least detecting all of it. And then we have to scratch our heads to see actually what this dark gas in really is and why isn't it shining? Why can't we see it? And maybe with other methods we can we can actually see it in the future. So the gamma rays are sort of pioneering our, um, our detection of these new parts of the interstellar medium. At the moment, do you have any idea what could it be? Or Yeah, it's, it's probably um, molecular hydrogen. We, we see molecular hydrogen by other methods, but this is yeah. a kind of molecular hydrogen which, for various reasons, can't be seen by any other technique. Is that because it's rather cold? Normally we detect molecular hydrogen indirectly because it is associated with, with a molecule of carbon monoxide, which can be measured very easily. And that happens in very dense clouds in the galaxy of gas. And probably this, this molecular hydrogen is is much more diffuse, and it's not associated with this carbon monoxide, and that's why it makes it hard to see it with radio telescopes and by other methods. So it's probably um, more diffuse, and that's why it's really hard to detect. And then one of the last things you spoke about was um, using gamma rays and uh, cosmic rays to get a bit of an idea of what our galaxy would look like from the outside, which of course is a rather difficult thing for us to do. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, it is difficult because we're sitting right in the middle of the, not in the middle of the galaxy, but we're sitting inside the, the galaxy, so it's actually very hard to get an idea how it, how it would look like, for example, from an astronomer on, on the Andromeda galaxy. <laughs> Suppose we had the Fermi satellite and the Planck satellite from some civilization on in Andromeda, what would they see from our galaxy? And we're only interested in this case in, in, in the total emission because mm. seen from so far with a telescope like Fermi, the galaxy just looks like a dot. So what we try to do is to um, work out what the um, emission of the galaxy would look like seen from some distant place. Because we measure many galaxies ourselves from here, we would like then compare our galaxy with those with what ours would look like. So we made a distribution of the radiation, basically, from the radio all the way up to gamma rays mm -hmm. and in cosmic rays. And um, this was a fun thing to do because then you can compare with um, with what we see for other galaxies from, from, from our point of view. So that was just something you we did. It turned out to be quite interesting. And where are we bright? What sort of wavelengths do we Oh, we're most at? bright, of course, like absolutely dominating is the optical part, as you might expect. I mean, it's about a, there's about a million times more radiation coming in the, in the part you can see with your eye than in the cosmic rays. And in, in the radio and gamma rays, it's also much less. But nevertheless, it's very significant. And of course, there are other galaxies where the radio is much more important than in our own galaxy. Our own galaxy is relatively weak in, uh, in radio 
Do we look kind of normal compared to uh, other galaxies? No, we look. We're we're a pretty typical normal galaxy. We look very much like Andromeda. I think an astronomer Andromeda would, looking at our galaxy, would see something pretty similar. Okay. Well, we wish you very good luck with um, with the rest of the results from Fermi. Thanks very much for being interviewed. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Mark and Liz. So we come to the odds and ends section of the show, and. My end is actually the demise of a satellite. Um, <laughs> so, the Upper Atmosphere Research Satellite, uh, which was decommissioned in 2005, is going to have an uncontrolled entry to the Earth. That sounds scary. It is, because there's a 1 in 3,200 chance of it hitting you. That's, right. that's not great, really. Well, we don't really know where it's going to land. Um, so, this is a bus-sized satellite, which it's is going to... sounding better and better. <laughs> Well, maybe. Um, so this satellite is going to be coming back down to Earth at, towards the end of September. It's going to be an uncontrolled uh, re-entry into the atmosphere, and it, hopefully most of it will burn up, uh, and its debris will land over in a 500-mile area in the ocean somewhere. We but hope. We hope. Right. But no one really knows where it's going to land, and tracking it is going to be quite difficult at the moment until it actually starts its re-entry and burning up and disintegrating. So one in... 3,200 does not sound like very good odds to me. Wait a sec, why is it not able to be controlled? The satellite was commissioned before all the space rules happened for satellites. <laughs> right. I don't really know exactly what space rules they are, but what satellites need to do is they need to have enough fuel left over for re-entry uh, so they can control where the satellite is going to land. And, well, this was before that time, so it used all its fuel doing its mission, looking at the atmosphere and... Well, global warming. Um, so instead, it's going to plummet back to Earth in some uncontrolled manner. Not to alarm anyone. Brilliant. <laughs> Yay. So at the end of September, hopefully we'll all be talking to you soon. <laughs> hopefully you'll be able to listen to the October edition of the Jogcast and we won't all be dead. Happy thoughts there. Happy thoughts. Shall I move on? My odds and ends are coming from things that we've talked about on the Jogcast before. In the September show, we mentioned that the Astronomy Photographer of the Year winners were going to be announced on the 8th of September, and they were. The overall winner is a guy called Damien Peach, who took a brilliant picture of Jupiter with two of its moons, Io and Ganymede. And the detail is just amazing. You can actually see some detail on the moons, which is unbelievable. I didn't think you could do that from the ground. My favourite one is from the People and Space category, which was taken by a guy called Jeffrey Sullivan and it's kind of a self-portrait of him standing and then there's the Milky Way rising above him and it's really cool. And these photos are really spectacular, aren't they? I mean, the time and effort everyone's put in to make these amazing photos. And they're brilliant and I think they're on display at the Greenwich Observatory so we'll put a link in the show notes to all the details for that. My second odds and end is again some pictures and again something we talked about before. I think in the August Extra shows Adam was talking about the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter dropping its orbit so it could try and get some better pictures of the Apollo landing sites. Now we found this out via Twitter and the LRO tweeting in the first person wasn't quite sure if it would be able to get any good pictures because it was dropping its orbit but it wasn't changing its speed so it would be going really fast and it might be too blurry but they've managed to get some really amazing pictures of the Apollo 12, 14 and 17 landing sites and it's really incredible because before the LRO images of these sites, you could kind of see footprints, you could kind of see tracks. Now, you can tell the difference between astronaut footprints and 
from the wheels of the buggies. So you can see where they've driven around all on the moon's it's, surface. It's mental. It's so detailed. It's amazing. So these were taken with the narrow angle camera. And what I didn't realise was that the LRO is actually in an elliptical orbit around the moon. So what they did was they kept the average altitude above the lunar surface, but they changed how elliptical this orbit was. So instead of going from a kind of usual altitude of about 50 kilometres, the lowest altitude it went to was only 21 kilometres. And it stayed there for 28 days to get a full um, lunar rotation. And then it's gone back up now to 50 kilometres. So was it tweeting these pictures as well as telling you about it moving up and down? No, these were all released in a big kind of press release a couple of days ago. The other really cool thing is that Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, on his blog has taken the picture of the Apollo 17 landing site and then found a picture on the NASA website that is an original photo taken by the Apollo 17 astronauts as they left the moon, taken on a 16mm camera apparently. And he's kind of cropped this and rotated it and put it next to the LRO image on his blog. And it's amazing. I'm just... I just love it. That's pretty cool. Can you actually see, like, bits of spacecraft and... Flags and things. Yeah, so in <laughs> in the original one, in the actual photo, you can kind of make out some tracks and you can see the descent module. The LRO images are a lot more detailed, but it's amazing because you can see the same tracks because obviously there's no wind or anything on the moon to get rid of them. That's so yeah, pretty cool. Really cool. Hopefully that will stop the doubters. So how long will these stay around for, I guess? God knows a You'd assume thousands, millions of years. Because with nothing to change all these footprints. Yeah, until we go there and we colonise the moon. Can you imagine there'll be rides in the future where you can just follow the buggy pass that are the original (laughs) people, the Apollo astronauts landing on the moon? Put your footprint next to Neil Armstrong. Oh, that'd be amazing. Oh, okay, I think we should copyright that now and and then save the rights. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I have two pieces of odds and ends. Um... The first is to do with uh, 50 new exoplanets have been discovered using a telescope in Chile um, called HARPS in La Silla. And this set of 50 new exoplanets includes 16 super-Earths, which are planets that are bigger than Earth but have a mass smaller than gas giants like Jupiter. And interestingly, one of these super-Earths is actually inside the habitable zone, which is the area around a star where water could be liquid and it's therefore considered habitable by aliens I guess (laughs) (laughs) life generally Um, so that's quite interesting but actually five of these planets have masses that are less than five times the mass of the earth so they're pretty small in extra planet terms so we're getting there we're getting there it's weird because we keep on talking about new exoplanets being discovered and I'm almost finding myself, I'm not getting bored, but I'm waiting for the day when we actually find a planet that is like Earth that we could actually, if we could travel there, go and live on. And it's just strange to me that I could get to this point where they found 50 exoplanets and I'm just thinking, yeah, but none of them's really like Earth. <laughs> yeah, but one of them's in the habitable zone, so we're getting there. Yeah. And and this one, the one that's in the habitable zone, is only 3.6 times the mass of the Earth, so it's not that much bigger. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> I, I reckon we couldn't go and live on that. Give it a whirl. All right, so I'll send you guys first. Send me a postcard. <laughs> Libby's pulling faces at me now because <laughs> I insulted her on the last job cast when we said that we couldn't believe she couldn't get 
the postcard to us before she did. The postcard was definitely sent in Taiwan, and in fact, one of them I sent has only just arrived three weeks later after being back. It arrived yesterday. So, and some of them still haven't arrived yet. So you were doing really, really well a week after I returned getting a postcard, and then not believing me when it was sent. Let's get back on track. <laughs> okay, record straight. My second piece of odds and ends is a brown dwarf, which is a failed star. Um, and this brown dwarf has a huge storm on it, absolutely massive. Um, and they detected this storm by observing the brightness of this brown dwarf. And its brightness changed by 30% in eight hours, which is a whopping change in a very short space of time. So they're expecting it to be just a huge, huge storm, similar to the great red spot on Jupiter, but probably on a bigger scale. So a 30% change in brightness. 30% change in brightness. Over eight hours. Yes. That's some humongous storm. Yes. <laughs> Do we know what's causing it? Uh, we don't know much about it, as far as I'm aware, but just by doing more observations of it, we're going to be able to get some information on how exoplanet um, weather works as well, because brown dwarfs are quite similar to the very large exoplanets. It's all kind of a grey area. Yeah, or a so brown area. No. Oh. <laughs> Do we actually know what... <laughs> uh, if you actually got like a really big planet, gas giant, and a small brown dwarf, apart from the fact that the planet orbits around a star, is there any difference? Maybe we should send this question to Tim O'Brien. And at that point of the show, it's time for Ask an Astronomer. The first two questions this month are about constellations. And the first one's from Dominic, who says, I'm a junior astronomer. I can find Orion and Ursa Major, or the Plough. Can you help me find other constellations from those two? Let's try. Let's start with the Plough, because that's actually uh, fairly obvious in the sky at the moment, in the north. Um, it basically looks a bit like a saucepan, so it's got a handle with a sort of pan hurrier at one end. Um, and if you were to sort of take the pan hurrier and go above the pan, so from the direction in which you'd pour stuff into it, um, you can actually find Ursa Minor, which is a little burr. Um, the plough is actually an asterism, a pattern of stars that's part of the constellation Ursa Major, the great burr. So the little burr, Ursa Minor, looks a bit, also looks a bit like the plough shape, although sort of rotated, so a bit like a sort of pan with a long handle. Um, at the, and at the end of the handle is actually the North Star Polaris, which of course you probably know you can find that by taking the two stars at the end of the plough, which is the, the opposite end to the handle, so the sort of pan end, the two stars that are right at the end, uh, and extend those sort of upwards, if you like, above the, above the pan shape. Um, and the, the next bright star in that direction is Polaris, and that's basically at the end of the tail of uh, the little burr, the end of Ursa Minor. And if you were to go below the pan of, of, of the plough, um, you'd actually find Leo, well, Leo Minor and Leo. Leo's the lion, of course, and but to be honest, it doesn't really look like a lion at all, so I'm not sure that's much help. If you follow, if you take the plough and you take the handle of the saucepan and you follow the curve around... So you're sort of curving around, following the curve down around from the plough. Um, you'll see a bright star called Arcturus. Um, and I think people sometimes refer to that as Arc to Arcturus, as you sort of follow this arc around. And Arcturus is actually part of a constellation called the Herdsman, which if I get this pronunciation correct, I hope I do, um, is Bull, Bull, <laughs> is Bootes, um, which is, 
B-O-O-T-E-S. So it looks like booties or boots, um, but but apparently you're supposed to pronounce the two O's separately, so it's Boortes. Um, now, it's not really a good time of year for Orion yet, but it will be as we go, go on into the Northern Hemisphere winter. And assuming that you are in the Northern Hemisphere, you don't actually say where you are, um, then if you sort of take Orion and you go to the right and up above Orion, you'll actually find Taurus, the constellation of Taurus, the bull. And what you'll see is the most obvious thing is a V shape, a pattern of stars that looks like a V. And at one end of the sort of the sort of top of one of the V's, you one of the arms of the V, you'll see a bright, quite a bright reddish star, um, Aldebaran, which is basically the eye of the bull. And if you go on beyond that, carry on in the same direction, about the same distance again, beyond Taurus, you'll see a little group of stars called the Pleiades, which is not actually a constellation at all. It's actually a cluster of stars, stars that are formed out of the same cloud of gas and dust. So it's quite a small group. So they're actually quite close to each other in space, whereas for a constellation, uh, the stars don't actually have to be close to each other at all. It could just be that they, you see one um, near to another because they're actually along the same direction in terms of the line of sight you're looking. So the, the, one of them could actually be a long way away in the distance beyond the other. If you go back to Orion and you sort of take Orion's belt, if you follow the line of the belt down and to the left, you'll actually get to the brightest star in the sky, other than the sun, uh, which is called Sirius. Um, and Sirius is actually part of Canis Major, the big dog. Um, and it's actually, it's a constellation that's not really too easy to see the whole of it, unless you've got really quite dark skies. Um, I guess another one near, near Orion is actually Gemini. If you sort of go up and to the left of Orion, you'll see two quite bright stars fairly near to each other that are Castor and Pollux, the two main stars of Gemini, the twins. Now, of course, you can't, so it's hard to visualize this, of course. So, so I would say best advice is probably download Stellarium, which is a bit of software that you can download free from the web from www.stellarium.org. Or oh, there's loads of nice books that, um, that go through the constellations and show you where to where to find them and what they look like. Of course, you could make up your own constellations if you like. They were made up by people in the past, so you could just go out and just, as an exercise, you can go and draw what stars you can see and, and just imagine shapes that they might make up. Okay, the second question, actually following on from on the same topic, really, is from Alfred de Jong. I hope I've pronounced your name correctly, Alfred, who's in the Netherlands. And he says, why has no one ever decided to set standard patterns for constellations? And following on from that, what would be the best source of finding the most common or most acceptable pattern for constellations? Well, you're right, Alfred, of course, um, there is no standard pattern. And, and I guess what you mean by pattern is the sort of the shape of a constellation, if you like. And I would say the reason that it's not been done is because there's really no point in doing it. Um, it doesn't actually mean anything. Um, the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, decided almost 100 years ago now on standard boundaries for constellations. So it's, so basically the, the, the region of the sky that defines the constellation, that's, that is an agreed thing. And the reason for that is because we often want to know what constellation an object is in. And a classic example would be variable stars. So variable stars whether they vary in brightness because they're pulsating like the Cepheids or whether they are explosive like Novi. Um, they're usually, they're named after the constellations typically. Um, and these days we'd, we'd call them a V for variable and then a number, which would be the, 
the, the number of the star list in the list of variable stars in a constellation, followed by the, the abbreviation for the constellation. So for example, V1500 SIG is the 1500th variable star in the constellation of Cygnus. So these, I mean, just historically, just to sort of explain what, what's behind this, I mean, the standard constellations we have now, there's 88 of them, which we've extended over the years from an original list that was uh, compiled by Ptolemy um, almost 2,000 years ago. And on Ptolemy's list, there were there were 48 constellations. And of course, that actually didn't include the, the Southern Hemisphere. So of course, we're talking about the sort of westernized standard constellations derived originally from the, from the Greek. Um, and you can find lists of those on the, on the IAU website, which I'll link to from, from the Jodcast website. Now, um, there's a really good book that was written by Ian Ridpath, uh, called Star Tales. And I'll put, he's put that on the web and I'll link to that as well, uh, from the, from the Jodcast website. According to his, uh, book, he says the practice of basically drawing these sort of fantastical constellation figures. So the bull of Taurus or the hunter of Orion or the herdsman of Bootes began to die out in the 19th century as it sort of, you know, I guess our more modern scientific approach to astronomy started to take over. And one of the ways in which it began to die was it began to be replaced by these sort of stick man figures, if you like. So these sort of lines that connect the bright stars quite often. Um, and Ian says the first person to con- to do this, as, as far as he could find, was a guy called Alexandre Ruel um, at the Paris Observatory who published a map in 1786 with the first example of these sorts of patterns, which I think are the ones that you're referring to. Now, actually, actually I think the most common pattern um, that you find is, is due to a, a guy called Hans Ray, who published a book on this um, quite a while ago now. But to be honest, there are many, many variants of these patterns. So, you know, to be honest, you could make up your own if you like, and it'd be just as valid as anybody else's. Um, as it happens, I came across this issue myself quite recently when I was designing the new exhibition in the uh, Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre. And we were actually building a room that's designed to contain a large orrery. Um, so an, an orrery is one of these mechanical models of the solar system where although the, you know, the various planets are included all orbiting around the sun, um, and although the distances aren't to scale, uh, the times it takes, the time it takes for them to revolve around the sun is to scale. Um, so traditionally, these orreries have a clock face underneath uh, the, the planets, uh, where the planets sort of orbit against, and that would usually indicate the months of the year uh, and the twelve signs of the zodiac. You know that the sun moves through during the course of the year. Now, for obvious reasons, I was a little averse um, to using twelve signs of the zodiac. Um, so, so when we were created our large clock face for our orrery, um, I decided that what we would do is represent uh, the constellations as agreed by the International Astronomical Union. Now, of course, this leads to unequal spacings because as the sun passes through these constellation constellations during the year, it doesn't spend an equal amount of time in each. Um, it spends very little time in Scorpius, for example, and in fact spends more time in a constellation called Ephucus, the serpent bearer. So it, and, and that's not normally one of the 12 signs of the zodiac. So in fact, our Orrery clock first has 13 constellations and each constellation is represented on our clock first by the geometrical pattern of its boundary as defined by the IAU and the bright stars within it rather than by a sort of stickman figure or even one of these fantastical pictures. Uh, and, and actually we found it's quite a nice talking point for kicking off 
astronomical discussions. Okay, the third question this month is from Earth Unit. And Earth Unit asks, is Hubble's constant a variable? Well, good question. Because, of course, the name Hubble's constant implies it's constant and therefore its value shouldn't change. Well, in fact, the value of Hubble's constant does change with time. And the sort of way in which you can partly you can get an idea of this, because we usually often hear uh, Hubble's constant referred to as H0. And that's because we write it down as a H, capital H, with a subscript zero. And that's to indicate the value of the Hubble parameter at t equals zero, in other words, now. So that's the value of Hubble's constant now. And it turns out that in standard cosmological models, at any particular time, um, the Hubble constant is actually the same at all points in the universe. So in that sense, it is a constant. But as then time changes, the value of the Hubble's constant for that universe would change. So, for example, if we say the value of the Hubble's constant now is, let's say, 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec, what that means is that a point in space one megaparsec away from us would be moving away from us at a speed of 70 kilometers per second due to the expansion of the universe. Now, as it happens, uh, in most cosmological models, the value of, of H, um, the Hubble parameter, is actually slow, is actually decreasing with time, which is a bit confusing because you, you might, you're probably aware that the, the expansion of the universe is accelerating, we've discovered as a result of this thing called dark energy that we don't actually know what it is. So you might have imagined that that means that the Hubble constant would actually be increasing with time. Well, there is actually a, a difference here in the sense that, um, the expansion of the universe accelerating means that if you were to sort of pick a given galaxy, uh, it would actually move faster and faster relative to us as time went on. So that's its acceleration. But if you actually were to pick a point in space, you know, a certain number of megaparsecs away, and you were to watch galaxies as they sort of expanded through that, moved through that point, the speed that they had as they were passing through that fixed point would actually reduce with time. Um, in, in cosmological models. So in fact, H0, the Hubble constant, is constant in space at any given time, but it changes with time in the universe and is actually decreasing. Okay, final question this month is from Stephen Whitty, and he says, why do I see so many different estimates of when the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy will collide? Typically, he sees values from 4 to 10 billion years in the future. And he's a bit worried about this. He says, surely we can do better than that. Now, you know, I agree. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like, uh, sounds like we're not very sure about what's going on. Of course, it partly depends where you've seen these numbers. And it could be just a good example of the astronomer's favorite word, which is about. So, so the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy will crash into each other in about four billion years or about six billion years or about 10 billion years. In astronomical terms, they're not too far apart. But I think you're right. Maybe we could maybe we could do better than that. One thought I had was that it might be that uh, it sort of depends what you defined as, as the collision. You know, because these galaxies are, are large, um, you actually, Stephen actually points out that the, the size of the Milky Way compared to the distance between the two galaxies is actually relatively small. So you ought to be able to, to define the time at which they sort of hit each other fairly well. But it could be that basically what happens is as, as the galaxies 
come together, they largely pass through each other because the gaps between the stars are so large. So you basically get this sort of, if you like, a first pass where the, the cores of the two galaxies pass by each other as the two galaxies run through each other. And then they would separate again. And then they would fall back. And you might get several passes before you somehow define the point at which they merge. So that could be one confusion is how long does this merger process last? Are people talking about the first pass of the, the cores of the galaxies? Or are they talking about the point when they've defined them to actually be merged together to form the final combined gal- galaxy? Um, which, by the way, most people are referring to now as Milkomida, uh, the Milky Way galaxy and Andromeda. Anyway, um, well, uh, the distance to the, to the to Andromeda is quite well known, about 780 kiloparsecs. The speed at which it's moving towards us is also you know, relatively straightforward to measure. 120 kilometers per second is, is a good estimate. Um, we don't actually know very well what we would call the transverse velocity, which is the speed at which Andromeda is moving sideways to the to our line of sight, because you can't use Doppler shift to measure that, which is how we get the, the velocity along the line of sight, the so-called radial velocity. You'd have to sort of watch uh, the movement of the stars and then using its distance uh, estimate what speed they were moving at, and that's not been done. There's been an up, there's an upper limit on it, uh, in the sense that it's likely to be less than about 200 kilometers per second. So there is some uncertainty there in any modeling. The most recent sort of simulations I could find actually are by uh, a pair of authors called Cox, no relation, I don't think, and Loeb in 2008. And it, it's interesting because they actually show that the first, in their simulations, the, the first close passage between Milky Way and Andromeda will happen in less than 2 billion years. So that's actually a lot lower than, than Stephen's um, lower estimate that what he'd seen of 4 billion years. So the first pass is, is less than 2 billion years, and the cores of the galaxies will be fully merged in less than 5 billion years. So, you know, basically that whole merger process takes between about 2 and 5 billion years. Now, that is shorter than most previous simulations have, ha- have, have, have found. And the, the reason they argue for this is they put that relatively short timescale down to the fact that in their models, they've included the what they call the intragroup medium. In other words, between these galaxies, these galaxies might would consist of stars and gas and dark matter. And obviously, in any given simulation, some simulations might only include the stars, some might include the gas and the dark matter. Uh, they actually include an intragroup medium. So between the galaxies in the local group, between the Milky Way and Andromeda, they also include dark matter and gas. And it turns out that what we call dynamical friction, which is basically this sort of gravitational interaction between the galaxies and this intragroup medium, that interaction extracts orbital energy and angular momentum from the galaxies. So rather than sort of, you know, if you like, sort of orbiting around one another to some extent, um, because you're taking out energy and angular momentum from that orbit, they sort of fall together quicker. The, the cores sort of end up, you know, directed more directly towards each other rather than, than orbiting one another. And so the merger happens quicker. And that intergroup medium's not typically been included in simulations before. Um, they actually did do a variety of different models and, um, Typically, the first, the average first pass was in three billion years time and complete merger in five and a half billion years. Uh, so allowing for all these uncertainties in things like the, the transverse velocity and so on. So that seems fairly robust. 
And the final Milcomida galaxy uh, looks like an elliptical galaxy, which is sort of what we, you know, what we generally believe that the ellipticals form from the mergers of spirals. Interestingly, one of the things that they actually predict is they look, at, they look at what happens to the sun, because of course, you know, the sun's evolving. It's going to get hotter over time, um, eventually evolve into a red giant in about five billion years. So this whole merger process, if it extends between about two billion and five billion years, uh, is happening while the sun's still around and maybe even people still around to, to, to watch it. Um, so they actually look at where the sun goes. And they based, because they can't do that exactly, they sort of pick all the stars that are roughly in the region of the Milky Way, basically at the same distance from the centre of the Milky Way as our sun is. And they see what happens to those. And there's a good chance that the sun could be ejected into a so-called tidal tail. So it basically gets stripped away and chucked out of the Milky Way altogether. Um, there's actually even a small chance that the sun jumps galaxies. And it switches from being in the Milky Way to being in, in the Andromeda galaxy about 4 billion years in the future. So basically after these galaxies sort of pass through each other, after the second time they pass through each other, um, it sort of gets captured by Andromeda and, and um, then heads off into the Andromeda for a bit before before they finally merge. It's actually even been discussed, in other, other people have been even been discussing whether the, the large Magellanic cloud which is a small dwarf regular galaxy close to the Milky Way, visible from the Southern Hemisphere, uh, whether that might not actually be a, a companion galaxy to the Milky Way. It might actually be that uh, it's actually not bound to the Milky Way gravitationally. could even be the product of a, a merger between M31 and another galaxy five billion years ago. And in that merger, the LMC was flung out and ended up on an orbit where it now happens to have come close to the Milky Way. It's quite interesting, but it just shows you it's not what the state of this is, that we're still actually interested in doing these simulations of mergers and things in the local group. And it's interesting for, of course, our own local group and what we see close to us, but also very interesting for, you know, cosmological simulations about how do, you know, how do mergers affect galaxy populations and, and the evolution of galaxies in general. Thanks for that, Tim. So it's feedback time, so all of you who are not that interested in feedback and hearing what our awesome listeners have to say, you can go and put a kettle on and come back for the credits. Because someone's going to come back to listen to the credits. The music's good. I like the music. Okay. So at this point, I'd like to say our forum is still down. We're still having some server issues, so I'd like to apologise for all the people who regularly use the forum and say there's no feedback from there. And hopefully we should get it back up and running as soon as possible. Our amazing IT guys are on the case but they seem to have a lot of work to do and it may take a bit longer. So hopefully we'll get that back as soon as possible. We've had a couple of emails. Um, One was from Martin Holden, who says that he loves the show because of the depth of the interviews and wanted to know how to get a Jogcast t-shirt, but unfortunately you didn't include your full email address. I'm assuming it ends .com, but it might not. So if you could send us another email, as long as you want a men's large Jogcast t-shirt, we'll be able to sort that out. Also, thank you to John Beavis for your comments saying thank you to us. So thank you to you for thanks to us. And <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but we've also been nominated apparently for a European podcast award. So I'm not quite sure what the deal is with that. But if you can vote for it, we'll put a link on the website. Uh, we've also had a couple of tweets on Twitter. Uh, the first from Reese Pie, and she's just finished listening to the latest excellent Jodcast episode. And if you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it, is what she says. Oh, that's a really bad diamond joke, isn't it? 
think so. She did put the hashtag, see what I did there. Oh, you owe us cake for that. <laughs> you can't bribe cake out for a very bad uh, pun, especially when there's a website that does it as well and mm. calls the pulsar Beyonce and then describes the diamond planet as its ring. That's, again, awful. It is very awful, but very amusing mm. in some respects. But I want the diamond planet. Everyone wants the diamond planet. Yeah, but I'm officially staking claim on it. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to find a way to send a flag there. Totally possible. Um, the second the second tweet that we have is by Happy Hero, who says, While England is on, I'm listening to the Jodcast, an astronomy podcast, because that's how I roll. So, nice to know. Good, good. I actually watched the England match for once, and it was very boring, so I think Happy Hero had the better choice there. On Facebook, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who has liked us in the last couple of weeks. And if you haven't liked us yet, please go and click like, because we're awesome. Um, also, Mark Shaw has said, Woo! I made it to the Facebook Jogcast page. Sorry it so- took so long. Now, where's that tractor beam for that diamond planet? Hmm. Everyone wants it. It's mine. I'm it's sensing a theme here. mine. Maybe it should be Sam's, considering he discovered it. No. No? Okay. Whoever gets there first. And if you want to stake a claim to the Diamond Planet, or rather get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jogcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jogcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jogcast. And I'd like to say thank you to Andrew Strong for the interview. The editors were Jen Gupta and Mark Perver. And the producer was Libby Jones. Yay! So, until next time, jod on! Bye! 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 Bye.